Hey, everybody. I want to begin with a quotation here from Thomas Merton. This is from New Seeds of Contemplation. For me, to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. The first time I ever heard the phrase true self was from Thomas Merton, from his writings, from his musings. And I remember first encountering it and having almost a flush of panic, maybe, panic, shame, confusion, longing, a little hope, the content of which or the import of it being, I don't know what, what he means. <laughs> what is the true self? Does that mean I have a false self? Does that mean I don't know very much about who I am? All of that being yes, the answer being yes. And, and I think something started waking up when I first read Merton. I, let's see, how did I come to Merton? I came to him in, in a kind of a roundabout way. I read a book on the Enneagram by Richard Rohr, and um, he had a few passages in there from Thomas Merton, and I literally knew nothing about Thomas Merton. And I wondered, well, who, who's this guy? And how, why is he talking like this? Why does he sound like an ancient mystic and also sort of a contemporary friend at the same time? And I went to the bookstore and bought a book called the Thomas Merton reader. And I read the entire thing. And as soon as I was done, I, I sought out the seven story mountain, which is his autobiography, which was parts of it were embedded in the, in the Thomas Merton reader that I, that I bought. And I read the entire thing and I read the entire thing again, the seven story mountain. And it went in kind of deep and, and, Okay, so I want to talk about the true self today. I want to try to host a conversation about the true self by turning my attention back to Merton because I think he's saying something about the true self that is kind of missing from the modern contemporary spiritualish way that it's used like i'm just searching for my true self and or i found my true self or my authentic self or my deep self and and um and and i also might add we kind of live in a in a in an age of crisis around the self around identity really it's a it's a crisis of identity and in some respects we're living in a culture that is obsessed with identity. That's really what social media helps feed and promote is it's almost a cult of identity, a cult of, of naming and claiming and carving out and identifying as this or that. As an individual, of course, but as an individual embedded in ever smaller categories or niches that name us and... Um, 
give us a sense of meaning. And I guess that's to be expected. As we all know, the, the larger structures of meaning like family and church or religion and dominant narratives and history and education and uh, uh, I don't know, social institutions as they're fragmenting, what else is going to happen other than the individual, you and I, are going to freak out and wonder, well, who the hell am I? And where do I find this ground? And, and I think one of the things that happens with pop culture is that everybody, I mean, you know, even, I was going to say even naive people, we're all naive um, to a certain extent, but people who aren't thinking that deeply about cultural issues or, can see very obviously that what is given to me on a social media feed or on an Instagram or from an influencer is a kind of facade. So every single day we're confronted and our politicians appear as just facades and puppets of an ideology. And you often wonder, do you even believe what you're saying? And the feeling is no. I mean, we kind of know. Maybe we're even coming to expect that. So there's a kind of like, like a, an atmosphere's mistrust around this, where what what we what someone appears on the surface might not be telling the truth, and that also awakens a craving. Like I would like to be more true. I would like to be more authentic. And of course, in spiritual-ish circles like I'm in, there's a lot of talk about vulnerability and authenticity, and you know, speaking from that true place. And 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 I want to say, I guess the awakening of that desire is really important. It's a thread that's worth following, and so. I want to talk a bit about that today. I want to talk about the true self, but I'm going to lean pretty heavily on Merton because he challenges my own assumptions about what that even is. And if that's something that, you know, how would I even, how would I even begin a, uh, the path or the adventure of finding out such a thing? How would I become a saint, in other words? Meaning, how would I be myself, ultimately? So, uh, I want to maybe offer a few ads, advertisements, my own. <laughs> this is brought to you by some upcoming things I have in the works. So, I will have an Israel trip next year, 2023, end of February, beginning of March. The details are on my website. There's a main core group. Uh, church coming from Minneapolis. And if you live in that area, you, you're welcome to join them. And that's where the flights are originating from for the group. But the trip is also open to the public. And I, in fact, need a few more people and would love to have you come if that's something that is in your, is possible for you and piques your interest. And just send me an email and I'll send you the details and we'll kind of go from there because you can join from anywhere in the world. My last Israel trip, I had uh, people coming, you know, from England and different parts of the United States. And so all that can be arranged and would love to have you. The, the pilgrimage, the last one I did, I have to say, was one of, probably if not, I most, 
uh, favorite trip I ever did, which is funny after 18, almost 19 years of doing this, you'd think it would be getting old, but I'm changing, the world changes, the group changes. Uh, I feel like I'm, I continue to be changed by the conversation that takes place between text and history and modern politics and also people's questions and existential uh, dilemmas and uh, it's a living conversation, and, and a pilgrimage is a—it's a kind of spiritual discipline, and it's a—it's almost like a walking prayer. So I continue to find them quite potent and powerful. So I'm going to offer another one, and love to have you come. And so that's happening. And uh, last year, I did a nine-month course based on the book and the myth Iron John for a group of men, really struggling with and asking questions around the masculine and what I like to call the sacred masculine. I think it's a missing conversation in the modern world, and um, there aren't very many spaces where it's happening. And so I just tried to create an online space, and it was really rich and rewarding and beautiful. And So I'm going to do a retreat in October, or an intensive. Really, it's more of an intensive than a, than a retreat here in Michigan, about an hour from uh, Grand Rapids, called Exploring the Sacred Masculine. So space is limited, and I just put it up. I already have a few people that I know are coming, but if that interests you and you live close enough to Michigan and want to make the trek, so end of October, I think October 27 through 30, right before Halloween, so that weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I haven't nailed down all the details in terms of logistics, so I'm, there's some negotiation happening, but that's roughly when it's going to happen. And, and if you want more details, uh, send, me, send me an email. You can apply through the website, and that will let me know you're interested. And if this is a conversation that feels like it's important to you and you would like a safe enough, I like to say that, safe enough place to explore some of these things because it's also dangerous to really take a hard look in the mirror and and allow the the deep wisdom tradition to reflect back to us something that's missing right now which is what i would call the sacred masculine so it's i hope it will be challenging it will be challenging for me for sure so if that but if that if there's like a seed of curiosity that says yeah that i think is needed um, don't hesitate sign up because I'm pretty sure this this trip, uh, this uh, intensive will fill. So, okay, that's uh, happening. And um, maybe that's it. Other than, I, I sometimes forget, but I'd like to right now, since I'm remembering, to promote C3. C3 is an organization, a small spiritual community that I work for in Grand Haven, Michigan, where I teach a little over half of the Sundays a year. We meet in the community center in Grand Haven. And uh, we make those talks and teachings available online. So if, if, if you don't know that, you can find it usually on Facebook, Google it, YouTube. It's also on there. C3WestMichigan.org is our website. And I'm doing right now a series on the great questions. And, and I'm also... I'm not the only one who contributes to the teaching. So we often bring in really interesting people, local people, and we always have great local musicians as well. So anyway, just a shout out to that community, um, which I've grown to love and, and a little of where else you can find uh, some of my own um, talks. So, all right, 
enough in the way of advertisement. I have been wanting to make a podcast on the true self for a while, and I've been going slowly and, and patiently. I think because, uh, well, it's probably, at least in my view, related to the conversation of soul. I, I think about soul and true self as kind of holding hands or, or another image for the same kind of thing, and, it, and it's a bit difficult to talk about. It's, it's sort of like using the word God. Um, there's enough ambiguity and mystery and paradox mixed in that it's challenging to talk about, but I've wanted to talk about the true self because I hear it so much now. It's made its way into kind of modern talk and and in a culture that is obsessed with identity, oftentimes it it it's colored by this kind of impulse like I'm going to show up now in the world as my true self and I identify as this or that and I'm I'm revealing that to the world and to myself, I imagine. And that this is really, you know, my true core. And of course, I th- again, I, I think, especially if that comes from a genuine place, that desire, then I, I think that's really good. That's a good desire. It's a good impulse. Often I find, though, you, you don't really get to find out what, quote, the true self is in, until you start living that. And, and that's pretty challenging. You find out what's real and what's not. That's a line from David White. You find out what's illusion and what has some solid ground, and you don't always know. So I think a little caution around around the question of true self is needed and, and humility, and, and I'm speaking to myself, I'm preaching to myself. Maybe that's what I'm doing most of the time. And yeah, some humility is in, is in order. And I think... Just to say directly, I encourage you to go on the great adventure of the discovery of the true self, and you'll need a heart full of humility to do so, because the falsehoods and illusions and blinders and makeup and images and personas and masks that we wrap around ourselves are hard to shed. And the ego is endlessly clever and would love to take some new revelation and wrap itself in it and say, well, now I am. All this time I've been X and that's been false, but now I'm, now I'm showing up as this and would love to take that. And so just a fair amount of I don't know is needed really to, to soften into the conversation and Maybe that's what's needed more than anything else is just a softening. And I'm really going to rely pretty heavily, as you'll see here in a minute, I'm going to read some long passages from, from Merton. And the reason why I want to do that is because I, I hope you'll hear a hint, a guess, a clue. You know, Isaiah says, the Lord has given me a teacher's tongue to know the words that sustain the weary. And boy, that's a challenge for me personally, for any teacher. I just love Isaiah's definition. Well, the teacher's tongue is a gift. It's not the ego here. It's it's a gift. It comes from the mystery, and and you know it's real when when there are words that sustain the weary, and and we live in weary times. The divisions and politics and lies and information and masks and deceit and 
power and fear and weary, weary. It makes us weary. And when I read Thomas Merton, I feel a little of the words that sustain the weary, that he has a teacher's tongue and and he does know the words that sustain the weary, though he also says really challenging things. So it's and maybe that's the best kind of sustenance. It's something that's both tasty and palatable and challenging as it goes down. So I'm going to rely on rely on him. And uh, maybe just a quick story that comes from yesterday. I was um, this was the catalyst that that made me say, okay, now 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 I'm going to attempt to talk about the true self. So I was being interviewed for an article and you know, I don't know if I'll be in the article or not. It's not, it doesn't really matter. But the person asked me, I think authentically, not, not genuinely is probably the right way to say it. Genuinely, if near the end of the interview, if I, if I identified as a Christian, I thought, hmm. well, first of all, I trusted this person. And so I didn't have that kind of like, what are you trying to get at, you know, kind of reactive or defensive posture. But I did say the question makes me uncomfortable. And I want to say two things about that. First of all, <clears throat> it's, it's actually a pretty good question for me personally. It, and let me just change the language a little bit. <clears throat> What's my relationship now with Christianity? What's my relationship now with the, uh, I was going to say geography or something like that of, of the Christian world. And what's my relationship with Christ, with the Christ image, with the Christ archetype, with the living, uh, breathing power of the death and resurrected one? Or is that just over, you know? So that's partly what made me uncomfortable, like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know how you feel about the, the phrase spiritual but not religious. I first encountered that when I was working at a local high school here as a religion teacher, Bible and religion teacher, and I was doing some research. Uh, I, was, I was basically reading the, the information that the Pew Forum of religion and public life was putting out about religion in America. Really interesting stuff. And this was a few years ago. And there was a questionnaire in there that was helping one identify where they were, speaking of identity. And it was the first time I ever encountered the phrase spiritual but not religious and the category of the nuns, no particular religion. And I thought, that's me. I was I was relieved to tell, to tell you the truth. And I think that, you know, I've always, ha I've always had a kind of uncomfortable relationship with institutional Christianity because I was raised so deeply embedded in it. It paid my grandpa's bills, it paid my, my parents' bills, and it eventually paid my bills. And that's, that makes for some confusing terrain because all right, the thing that's paying your bills is also asking you to mentally assent to a series of beliefs and doctrines and statements. And I never wanted to, and I needed to, and I didn't want to, and sometimes I wanted to, and it made me a little uncomfortable. And, and anyone who's a student of history, and 
looks carefully at the history of the church, the Orthodox, the Catholic, the Protestant church, the, the totality of it, knows that there are many abuses and things to be really ashamed of and, and ways in which the church itself missed the mark of, of even embodying the most simple things from the Jesus story. But that's not totally true. It also did amazing, wonderful, life-giving things in the world. And uh, some of the first hospitals were, well, the first hospitals, as we would think of them, came from the monastic tradition. And, you know, I could go on and on about the gifts in, to, to which the Christian landscape also gave the world. So it's a mixture, but that's just true of everything. That's just true of every single religion, every single ideology, every single stance one would take in the world, every community that says we are this and not that. It's it's a mixture. So um, I'm, I guess I'm saying that because that adds added to my fuel to say I'm not an institutional Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm not... I, I enjoyed a somewhat rebellious reactivity toward it, toward Christianity. So again, back to the question, do you identify as a Christian? Ooh, that gives me trouble. And But one of the things among many that's been happening to me in the last few years is after leaving uh, the church, the um, evangelical church that, that paid my bills, you know, it's like, okay, so are you more free? You know, was, is that really holding you back? No, not really. It, uh, and what do you think about Jesus now, you know? And so, okay, go ahead and be spiritual, but not religious, but what kind of world does that land you in? And here's been the irony of my own life, that about the moment I could freely proclaim I'm not religious was the moment that, in a way, some blinders were taken off and I could feel myself actually as a deeply religious person and one who was having a different kinds of what I would even call religious experiences. How ironic, you know, I'm out of here. And then, and then to be confronted by the mysteries of life and of God and of the natural world of being itself and, and even the experience of not knowing, which I felt pulled into, like I used to say, I don't know what God means anymore. Well, Thomas Merton says sometimes that's actually what God does to us. St. John of the Cross would say the same thing. God weans us from God. And of course, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have said, oh, this is, I'm, I'm definitely having a, this is supposed to happen because of my religious orientation, I felt. No. I don't have a religious orientation and it happens anyway, yeah. And but my my point was not knowing, even saying, I don't know what what we mean by God anymore, in a way is is a kind of deeper invitation into the conversation. And what I mean by religious is a certain kind of orientation. That's what I mean right now. And um I feel like my life is oriented toward the mystery toward reality with a capital R to God to the to transcendent to the transcendent to um, the perennial truths uh, running in the underground river and and I'd like to live my life in such a way 
as to honor that and to deepen my relationship with the mystery and with the sacred and the rites and rituals and texts and ceremonies and and saints and mystics and teachers i'm trying to listen to not really turn my back on and that that's been the a huge surprise in my adult life you know i'm free to do whatever i want and i feel the the pull of these ancient voices i feel thomas merton tapping me on the shoulder and saying wait don't don't be so arrogant here. And, you know, I, I feel that the religious posture forming again in my life. And, okay, so that's a surprise. Back to the question, do you identify as a Christian? Well, now I'm in real trouble, you know. And, and also, the person of Jesus continues to haunt me, both in my dreams and imaginings and and. And even sometimes in just phrases will just pop into my head. I'm not doing this. You know, I had a dream, uh, the I, so-called, it's not doing this, and quote, unquote. I had a dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream because it's, uh, I just don't feel like it right, right this minute. But it, here's the setting of the dream was inside the Holy Sepulcher, which is the, the uh, place that commemorates the death and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, I was inside the Holy Sepulchre, inside a secret room that I didn't know was there. So it was like I was in the Holy of Holies of the Sepulchre. And, you know, I can go around saying, I can go around saying all I want, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious, and, and then my dream puts me right into the very center of that question and connects me deeply to maybe what what Jung calls the religious instinct. And I think, I, I've said that before on this podcast, I, I believe that human beings have a religious instinct. And, and, it, and if we don't honor it, it can easily be co-opted by uh, a paper-thin ideology. So it's meant to be oriented toward the mystery, toward the transcendent, toward the one. Okay. Maybe here's another way of, of putting it. So I'm I'm paraphrase something I read in, in Jung once. He said, uh, you can do all the yoga you want, and your psyche may be a medieval Christian. <laughs> Which and that makes me laugh, but that's sort of like saying, Okay, you can you can identify as this or that. And your ego and your persona, your consciousness can can lay claim to this or that. But what's happening in the underworld? It may have a there may be a completely different landscape that you're running from, a completely different way of orienting yourself toward the mysteries awaiting you in dream time, or in the unconscious, or just beneath the masks that you're wearing. And and that's kind of how you know one reason why I think that quote is so funny is because I kind of feel the same way. Like I can claim all day long I'm spiritual but not religious, and when I go to sleep at night, it's like no. You're a deeply religious person, and and I, for one, at least at this point in my life, am, I'm not ashamed by that. Yep, that's how I'm oriented in the world, and, and I think it's important. Now, what was giving me trouble in this question, it's a very long-winded way of <laughs> talking about what inspired the podcast, I guess, but was the word identity. I ident Do you identify? Well, so here are some questions as soon as I hear something like that. Well, who is the I here? If, if I identify, 
well, what is this I? Is that the ego? And when I say ego, I just mean my consciousness, my con the tip of my conscious awareness. And um, how much, you know, how healthy is that ego? Because I actually believe you can have a, a, a healthy ego or a healthier ego or a very immature and fragile ego. Both of those are possibilities, and we probably vacillate between the two. But certainly, um, you probably agree that that uh, a, an immature ego is pretty prominent in our world, in us and in, in others. So who's the I talking here that's identifying as this? And why? And Or is it, is it the, technically, I use again Jungian terms, the persona, the mask. That's all persona means is the mask, the mask, the face we show the world, the face. And we're kind of half conscious of that face, how we want to be seen, how we think we understand ourselves, how we like other, others to understand us. That's all the realm of persona. And persona is important. It's a very important part of growing up. That's part of adolescence. You begin to form an ego, an I. A sense of, okay, this is how I am uniquely constellated, we would say, and my kind of taste and proclivities, and this is how I'm showing up in the world. These are the kind of clothes I like and the music I like and the people that I'm with, all very part and part, important part of adolescence. And um, so is that the I that is doing the identifying? And then you could even ask slightly more complex questions that are more psychological. And well, what if I'm identifying, but I'm speaking much more out of a subpersonality or a complex or a wound? It's really my father wound, my father complex, or my mother wound that's speaking here, or, or um, I'm speaking from a wounded and traumatized place. Or uh, and so, which I are we talking about? <laughs> what do we mean by the self? And now we're getting closer to the true self and. Are any of those things, our complexes, our ego, our persona, is that the true self or not? Well, even by saying and that there is such a thing as a true self, it implies, well, those are at, at least incomplete manifestations of something true. That's, that's the, I think, the nicest way of putting it. They're incomplete. It's not like the ego is wrong. It's just limited. It's an incomplete manifestation of what's true. And so it may be the case that I really know almost nothing of the true self that's maybe deeper beneath the surface. I just had an image of from Teilhard de Chardin, the mystic, who said, I, I, I lit a lamp and went into my inmost self. I love that phrase. It echoes the Psalms where David speaks of his inmost self and and so, yeah, and, and you light a lamp and you go in and he's surprised by what he, fi what he finds there and voices that he doesn't recognize and names he doesn't recognize until eventually he gets to the abyss out of which he senses his uh, life dimly emanates. What a line. And Well, what kind of perilous adventure is that? Are you willing to light a lamp and, and in, the, in the dim light of that all of a sudden see, well, these masks and egoic claims and certainties and things I identify as, they're actually quite paper thin and some of them are even illusions. And so I'm, I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to follow the, the very dim light, though I don't know where I'm going exactly. So, like I said, um, the tr the, a conversation around the true self takes a little bit of humility here and and I'll try to cultivate that as I, as I read here. So um, I'm going to read some longer sections from New Seeds of Contemplation. So this is from chapter 5, 
which is called Things in Their Identity. And he starts in kind of a lovely, I think, beautiful place. A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. For in being what God means it to be, it is obeying him. It consents, so to speak, to his creative love. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. <laughs> what, a, what a way of, view, of, of relating to reality with a capital R, that every living thing, every tree in its wild individuality is an expression of the essence of God, is not even distinct from the essence of God. And when it is wildly and uniquely manifesting its glory, it is manifesting the glory of God. It's, that's its identity both its individuality and it as an expression of the divine. The more a tree is like itself, the more it is like God. If it tried to be like something else, which it was never intended to be, it would be less like God, less like the divine, and therefore it would give him less glory. <laughs> so already we're getting clues about, well, what... What direction is Merton going here when it comes to identity or to a phrase like the true self? What's really true? What's true about the essence of a tree? And the clues are, well, it's, it is being itself. And something about its being itself is itself also an expression of the essence of, of the totality, of the transcendent. So already we're touching the paradox of wild individuality and the essence of, of the divine or spirit. So it's like soul, the soul of something. It's wild uniqueness. And the spirit, the larger thing in, into which it is embedded and everything is embedded. So here's a little more from Merton. Therefore, each particular being in its individuality its concrete nature and entity, with all its own characteristics and private qualities, and its own inviolable, inviolable, it's a hard word for me to say, I think that means like, inviolable, what does that mean? That means um, um, unbroken, sort of. Its unbroken identity gives glory to God by being precisely what God wants it to be here and now, in the moment, in the wild presence, I'm adding those words, in the circumstances ordained for it by his love and his infinite art. I mean, what a vision of, of the mystery of God to think about the divine as a wild artist that is both infused in everything and is co-creating everything in the here and now. And when any given individual entity like a flower, a tree, a bird, a hummingbird, a leaf, is itself, it, it's fully itself, it is also an expression of the divine. And, and it has its own characteristics and private qualities. It's a celebration of diversity, of wild individuality. Um, yeah, maybe I should just read a little more. The leaf has its own texture and its own pattern of veins and its own holy shape. The bass and the trout hiding in the deep pools of the river are canonized by their beauty and strength. 
The lakes hidden among the hills are saints, and the sea too is a saint who praises God without an interruption in her majestic dance. The great, gashed, half-naked mountain is another of God's saints. There is no other like him. He is alone in his own character. Nothing else in the world ever did or ever will imitate God in quite the same way. That is his sanctity. Such beauty. Such a... Uh, it's, like, it's like Merton can... is open. His, his heart, his mind, his soul, his spirit, his being is, op- is open to to God, the way in which the divine, the mystery is infused in everything. And it's like he looks out on the world and everything is sacred. Everything is a saint. And it's um, just by being itself, by virtue of being itself. And then he, then he begins to turn. He says, but what about you? What about me? And he says, unlike the animals and trees, it's not enough to be what nature intends. So now he's entering the human problem here. So you might think, oh, I know where this is going. A tree is, it, is itself its true self by simply being itself. And, and therefore, that's all we need to be. But it's a little more complex. There's a little more involved with the mysteries and complexities of human consciousness and will and freedom. So here's the line I started with. For me, to be a saint means to be myself. Okay, that's kind of like being a tree. I'm going to be myself. Okay, how? Um, Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is, in fact, the problem of finding out who I am. Okay, so it's not as simple as I'm just going to be myself. It poses itself as a question. Well, how do I find out who I am? And of discovering my true self. And here's the phrase, the true self. Trees and animals have no problem, but God makes them what they are without consulting them, and they are perfectly satisfied. With us, it is different. God leaves us free to be whatever we like. We can be ourselves or not, if we please. We are at liberty to be real or unreal. We may be true or false. The choice is ours. Now, if you have a more philosophical mind, you might you know, really start to wonder, what does he mean about being true or false? And, um, but, and that's, that's fine. That these things are worth, um, I think, really wrestling with. But sometimes I think that just the plain, in, in Hebrew, it's called the pshat. This is a, a rabbinic um, teaching technique. They, or anyway, I don't, I don't want to get into rabbinics right now, but they say the text has a pshat as well as 70 faces of meaning. So the Peshat is the plain, simple meaning. And, and I feel that here. We, we may be true or false, the choice is ours. And I think, yep, yep, life is often like that. We can be true or false. Sometimes it's real obvious. It's like we can lie or not. We can lie to ourselves. We can lie to our spouses. We can lie to our friends. It's right there. It's ever-present. Or we can be more true. We can, you know, swallow hard and say, well, this is where I'm coming from, or this is what I feel, and, you know, yeah, and the choice is ours. So Merton goes on, we may wear now one mask and now another, and never, if we so desire, appear with our own true face. But we cannot make these choices with impunity. 
causes have effects. And if we lie to ourselves and to others, we then cannot expect to find truth and reality whenever we happen to want them. So, in other words, if we're in, in the habit of lying to ourselves or believing our own illusions or investing too much in our various identities, then when we really need um, the truth and reality, it's, it's, it's out of reach. We're out of practice. If we have chosen the way of falsity, we must, we must not be surprised that the truth eludes us when we finally come to need it. So there are consequences. There are consequences to investing too much in the ego and in the I and in, in the cult of identity. Because when we, when we finally need the deeper truth, it's, it's evaded us. Okay. Merton says, we are even called to share with God. This is a funny way of putting it. To share with God, to share with the divine, the work of creating the truth of our identity. So, okay, well, how is it different than, than the world, the natural world? As he was sort of describing the tree and the... And the the naked mountain and the stream and the, the leaf. Well, there seems to be more of a, of a conscious participatory co-arising that's happening here. We're called to work with the divine, so there maybe there's a certain amount of consent involved here of creating the truth of our identity. Okay. He says we can evade this responsibility by playing with masks, another word for persona, and this pleases us because, because it can appear at times t- to be free and creative way of living. Let me just read that again because I was kind of stumbling a bit. We can evade this responsibility by playing with masks, and this pleases us because it can appear at times to be a free and creative way of living. I mean, to me at least, I, I know I keep picking on social media, but it it is how many of us are are relating to the world and in spending many hours of the day interfacing and even even mainstream media is interfacing with social media and and well it's fun to play with masks that's what he's saying it's fun to take a picture of yourself and you know here i am know me as this i know myself as this i'm wearing this i'm i'm the fill in the blank hashtag me with some group, ideology, meaning, purpose, carved out over and against the other, typically. Notice me, noticing myself. And it pleases us because it seems to be free and creative. It is quite easy. It seems to please everybody. We all like it, is what he's saying. But in the long run, the cost and the sorrow comes very high. To work out our own identity in God, in the larger mysteries, I would just add, to work out our own identity in God, which the Bible calls working out our salvation, is a labor that requires sacrifice and anguish, risk, and many tears. So you want to be about the true self? Get ready. Sacrifice, anguish, risk, and many tears. And it's going to be a working out a co-creative act. 
It demands close attention to reality at every moment and great fidelity to God as God reveals himself obscurely in the mystery of each new situation. And I think this is the real um, mystical Merton here shining through. Really, he can see and feel and sense and knows that, that God, the mystery, is revealing itself obscurely in every new situation. And if we can remain um, like if we can remain in this kind of stance that everything and every person and every moment is a kind of teacher, has the, has the capacity to awaken us, then we're closer to it. And, and, and he's also saying, and if we stay close to that, that those seeds of possibility that are blowing in the wind all around us, it will cause sacrifice and anguish and risk and many tears. It'll be challenging because the ego is a little too invested in itself. It, it believes its own PR. It believes its own PR, whether it has a high view of itself or a low view of itself, both of those. He goes on, we do not know clearly beforehand what the result of this work will be. And, and you know, it's, I, I just had an image of that phrase. <laughs> I remember the old school thing, like you write out a little quote and stick it on your mirror. I just had that image. We do not know clearly beforehand what the result of this work will be. That's, that's a mantra that I ought to let wash over me on a daily basis. And here is where I want to be as clear as possible, even though Merton often speaks in paradoxes and complexities here. But notice this sentence, the secret of my full identity. Okay, so he's about to give something away here. The secret of my full identity. In other words, the true self. What do I really identify as? He says, the secret of my full identity is hidden in God. Now that is not the way, most of the time, the phrase, the true self, the authentic self, the deep self, is used in contemporary spiritual circles or pop psychology circles or even psychological circles. And it's sometimes not the way I use it either. The secret of my full identity is hidden in God. Well, wait a minute. So I light a lamp and go down into my inmost self. And at the very bottom, I bump into the abyss of the divine. And he's saying, yeah. He goes on to say, he alone, this is God, alone, can make me who I am. Or rather, who I will be, this is the co-creative element, when at last I fully begin to be. <laughs> but unless I desire this identity and work to find it with him, with God, and in the divine, in God, the work will never be done. So maybe it's just important to point out here the word desire. Because I think the spiritual life, otherwise known as just life, is hard. You know, it's, it's a challenge. And, and, and I work with a lot of people now, one-on-one. -on -one. It's been the greatest gift and surprise of my life to have this kind of companion guiding role with people. And, um, and sometimes I just want to say, you know, the fact that you have this desire to 
whatever, pursue the truth, to be a little more authentic, to take off your own masks, to pursue the divine, though you don't really know what that means anymore. Well, the desire is trustworthy. That's what Merton is saying. Unless I desire this identity and work to find it in him, the work will never be done. So we can trust the desire. It's like we can trust the longing. Like Ronald Rollheiser's book, The Holy Longing. There it is. It's a, there it is. It's the longing, that holy longing. And it has its own intelligence, though the ego might not understand very much about it. The way of doing it is a, sec- is a secret. And I can learn from no one else but God. (laughs) So here he's like really rooting us in the alchemical secret cauldron of emptiness that does its work on us. It's not really up to you. This discovery of the so-called true self. So, um, okay, I'm going to skip a little bit here in the sequence of this chapter. And and I want to read a few sections now about the false self. So his claim here, as far as we can tell, is that the true self, though it is wildly and uniquely individual, I think that's why he spends so much time praising the uniqueness of the tree and the leaf is because you're like that. Your heart is like that. Your soul is like that. Your essence is like that. You're not like everybody else. And, And that is precious. But it's precious in as much as it is also related to the divine source that is giving birth to it and it is flowing through it. It's like that's the ground through which your wild individual in individuality flourishes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Without that ground, we're just a thing among things. So here's Merton on the false self. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. So, including Merton, definitely including me, including you, including your rabbi, your pastor, your guru. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God doesn't know anything about him. (laughs) And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. That that privacy, he's he's almost playing with with even what we would, in the Christian tradition, call hell, that isolation and privacy from the divine. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love. Outside of reality and outside of life. So, separate from, outside of. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. It's ultimately not true, is what he's saying. You can, you know, like the Simon and Garfunkel song, I'm a rock, I'm an island. It's, it's an ironic song because we also know it's not true. You're not a rock. You're not an island. You're not an isolated individual. We know this even like biologically. It's like you wouldn't be you without the colonies of bacteria that are that are cohabiting the place of are in your body living there. And 
they're not you and they're you. And without them, you wouldn't exist. You couldn't exist. And yet they're not part of our cellular makeup. They don't have our DNA. Like what? I'm a relationship. My, my, even my physical body is a relationship. And, and, and not to mention the external world, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the we're deeply dependent on reality, on what's real. So my false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. So here's what I think we will all recognize is true. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, <laughs> least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. My friend Thad, who's a philosopher, he likes to ask his students, do you think you have false beliefs? I remember he asked me that in the car once. We were riding in his Honda Accord. He said, do you think you have false beliefs? And, you know, like right away you want to say, no, I don't have false beliefs, but you can't even say that with a straight face. It's like, well, probably I have false beliefs. And, okay, well, that's kind of troubling. And I just don't know what they are. <laughs> If I knew what they are, I wouldn't have them. So I'm going to, I have to live with this kind of humble or humiliation that I might be wrong, to quote Radiohead. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. So not only are we not good at recognizing illusions, the ones that we have about ourselves, that we love, like the story that we're always telling about ourselves, good or bad. It's precious to us. We cherish it. Without it, we wouldn't know who we were. Whatever those stories are, or um, you know, perhaps you took a some kind of identity test, like uh, or a personality test, or you know, I'm, I'm not against any of those things. I think they are ways of of shining light. But when when we cling to them, when we treasure them, when we cherish them. It acts as a kind of blinder. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. Now, now sin here, I know this is kind of archaic, you know, monastic language here, biblical language, and um, but sin means to miss the mark. So it's possible to miss the mark, and maybe that's one of the differences between the a spirituality that's influenced by, by the great symbols and archetypes of Christianity, it is claiming that you can miss the mark. Other ideologies and philosophies and ideas and maybe even religions would say, there's no such thing. You know? So, well, you can decide. Are, where do you stand in, with this great question? I happen to say that, yeah, I, I, I miss the mark. Okay, I know that. Um, for most of the people in the world, there's no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of the shadow is what we call a life of sin. These are pretty damning words about, about modern life. Is it not much of the time a cult of a shadow? Dedic we dedicate our lives to the cult of our false self and that there's no greater reality than our subjective reality. 
I mean, think about, well, I j- here are phrases. Well, I just think or well, I just feel. And whatever I think and feel, whatever I claim is my experience, that is in fact real. And it cannot be questions. It cannot be challenged. It cannot, I mean, it's like, it's like saying, I am the sun at the center of the solar system and everything else revolves around my subjective reality. And I just think, okay, well, that's a temptation. It's a very narcissistic temptation. That's probably not going to serve us very well in the long run. That's going to have some consequences. And I, I think we're feeling those right now. So all sin, he says, missing the mark, all sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Now, hardly anybody will admit this. But again, it's like saying, I'm the sun at the center of the solar system. Everything else revolves around me, around my own egocentric desires, My egocentric desires are the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Talk about a deep narcissism. And what I want to say uh, is try to find the seeds of this narcissism in your own psyche, in your own ego consciousness, in your own egocentric desires. Because right away, I want to even want to back up from this and say, the other people do this. It's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow to say, no, I do this too. I would like reality to conform to my own egocentric desires. Now, here's the part where the first time I read this, like it almost scared me because I could recognize myself so obviously. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures. Yep. And the thirst for experiences. Most definitely, that's me. I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences for power, honor, knowledge, and love to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. Not only am I addicted to the cult of my false illusions, the masks and egocentric desires, then I wrap myself in experiences and pleasures and power and honor and glory and anything that will prop that thing up into something real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world. God, as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world. Notice me. Notice my experience. I'm having an experience. I'm having a feeling. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm perceptible to myself. And I'm perceptible to the world. As if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. In other words, that's the post. That's the social media post. It's like we're invisible. That's the illusory self. And we could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. (laughs) So, I don't know, what are you hearing in here? What's stirring in you? What's bothering you? Or is anything awakening and beckoning to you and calling to you in this particular musing of Merton's here? 
Are you recognizing elements of your own illusory self here? See, there's something I think hidden in the mystical traditions. If you don't like that word, let's just call them the wisdom traditions of, of the great spiritual wisdom traditions. And they all teach at their best an element of the, the teaching that ultimately we, we need a certain amount of, of detachment or non-attachment to our own life and certainly to our own experiences and to our own feelings and to our own stories and non-attachment particularly in buddhism and in contemplative christianity is a major thread and it's like we have very little palate for that because if we loosen our grip our attachment to this false and illusory self we feel like we're falling into an abyss which we kind of are it's kind of like a death. And so we want to resist that at all costs. So let me come back um, to the true self here, because I'm following Merton's uh, essay here. And we'll kind of end here with, again, I think some pretty challenging and not often heard words around the true self. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. Sometimes I like to use the image of, um, of a constellation. Like the true self is a constellation. It's a unique, wild constellation. And it's a process of discovery. It's like we don't know the pattern or the shape exactly at first. We don't know what stars are part of the constellating pattern and exactly what the image is or images that are present. And they are wildly unique. I mean, look at the night sky. Each constellation is, is its, its own work of art and has its own identity, like a tree has an identity, and like a particular tree has an identity. And you have that. You have that. That's part of the true self. But th what Merton is saying is, Okay, that wild identity is co-created inside in it, or is embedded inside a larger cosmos. That's the divine. That's the totality. Something like that. So it's not, it's sort of like saying it's not enough for you to be a, a, a single constellation separated out by itself. It's, its essence, its life, its beauty, its power, its breath, its vitality come from its embeddedness in the larger cosmos, in the night sky, to complete the metaphor there. The secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. But whatever is in God is really identical with him. And here's where he's really kind of walking that heretical, mystical line. <laughs> whatever is in God is really identical with him. For his infinite simplicity admits no division and no distinction. Therefore, I cannot hope to find myself anywhere except in him. So he's sort of, where does God end and I begin? Where does the true self end and God begin? Those are the questions he's wrestling with here. Ultimately, the only way that I can be myself is to become identified with him. That, that feels like a defeat, right? Really. I have to loosen my grip, even 
to what I think my own constellating patterns are here, my unique proclivities and tastes and desires, and settle into a kind of identity that's rooted in something larger. To become identified with him in whom is hidden the reason and fulfillment of my existence. Therefore, there is only one problem on which my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself and discovering God. This is, I hear Augustine in the background, my soul is restless until it rests in you. And I used to think Augustine meant, because Confessions is sort of like a, well, it's it's really one of the first memoirs, but it's a sort of a conversion memoir. And and also we rest when we, when we convert to Christianity, but I think way deeper than that is, I think, coming out here in Merton to discover myself and discovering God. So to go on the inner journey is risky. It's going to cause anguish. There will be tears as more and more illusions, more and more things that we cling to, our identity, get taken from us. And we sink ever more fully uh, into, into the larger, into the divine. That's the, that's the promise here. That's the hint. That's, that's the clue. And, and when I finally find myself, I find God. And he says also this, if I find him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. Somehow, this center point the centering constellation, the center point, the, at the, I'm speaking mystically, at the very center of our being, being here, is also the divine, is also divine, is also infused with the divine. And the divine and the true self hold hands. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes Merton's contribution to the, to the question of what is the true self so powerful, potent, and unique. And I'll just end with his words here. They're so awesome. But although this looks simple, in reality, it's immensely difficult. Yeah, no kidding. In fact, if I am left to myself, I will be utterly, it will be utterly impossible. For although I can know something of God's existence in nature by my own reason, there is no human and no rational way in which I can arrive at that contact, that possession of him, which will be the discovery of who he really is and who I am in him. Talk about a defeat. I can't do it, he's saying. You can't do it. That is something no man, no woman can ever do alone. Nor can all the men and all created things in the universe help him in this work. Now, what a way to end a a long essay on on identity. There's no one who can help you. <laughs> the only one who can teach me to find God is God himself alone. And I think this is where, um, I, I don't know, the, the, a certain amount of surrender, trust, and faith is involved. Okay, then teach me. Teach me where my identity is hidden. And do you, and I can feel such a different a stance with this kind of request, this kind of prayer. Teach me then. If you're the one who can teach me to find myself and to find God, then, then I'm open. I'm open.
Where are you hidden in the everyday, ordinary mysteries of my life? That's so very different than I'm going to find it. I'm going to discover it. I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to promote it. I'm going to defend it. And I need you to affirm it. That's very different. And I think that's part of um, what makes Merton so relevant even now. Thanks for listening.